What's up, people? Welcome back to yet another episode of Kickoff Sessions. On this week's episode, I'm joined with Mark Ross. Mark appeared on Kickoff Sessions last year, and we got into all the details on building a great career, a career that you're actually passionate about. We go a step deeper today to get into all the areas around the job market right now, which of course is completely different than what it was last year, how to stand out, what are some of the base requirements you're going to need to really establish yourself in any particular industry. We get into his new sales and trading book and how we can leverage some of that decisions to be able to make your own career decisions. And we also take a look at some of his earlier days where he built a lot of his companies. One was called Script Uni and how that started off as a side project and became not only a full-time gig, but how he moved into his new career. So quick background around Merrick for anyone who hasn't listened to the first episode. He was a market risk analyst at Morgan Stanley for a couple of years before moving on to State Street. Then he came back then to Morgan Stanley and was a VP before moving on to Numerix as a VP. He has extensive experience in the whole career and online business space. He has his own brand, as I mentioned, Script Uni. He's also a career coach for finance and he helps many different people land jobs in their finance careers. This is a very, very detailed session. If you want to start the next year correctly, if you want to get into it and learn exactly what you need to do to move fast, get jobs, stay in jobs, and actually progress through roles. So I'll leave it right here. Here's my conversation with Mark Ross. I hope you enjoy it. All right, let's kick off. So Mark, since we last recorded has been almost a year, 2nd of January last year, or this year, should I say, and job market, everything has completely changed since for young professionals and everything. Like, what's your thoughts on the on the kind of changing of that, at least so far? So the job market in finance hasn't changed much, actually. In technology, obviously, this is all over the, the, the world, what's going on. Everyone's being laid off. But in finance, this is this is normal. I think it's happening a little earlier than usual. Usually for finance, since most, most firms pay out their bonuses in February, March, April, they let people go roughly a month before their bonuses are paid out. That way they can pay out better bonuses, which looks better for them, as well as not pay bonuses or commit to salaries for those who are already working there. So this, it's, it's pretty par, of course, for finance, and I wouldn't be too nervous. Mm-hmm. Do you think people are kind of a bit more scared of young professionals, so your, your category of individuals, are they coming to you a bit more nervous for applications and whatnot now so at just my, my coaching clients seem very seem more panicked than usual although they always are pretty nervous and what i always tell them is back when i was in my undergrad in 2007 the professors would always tell me oh mark you are so lucky you're in school now it is a terrible time to look for a job and then five years later i'm in my master's program and everyone's telling me you are so lucky you're in school. It's a terrible time for a look for a job. That's it's just just the way it always is. It's always a terrible yeah. time to look for a job. So you have to stand out. It's never easy. Yeah. But it's the same as my brother. Uh, he's he was graduating like 2009. They said the exact same thing. Like you know, stay in education. He went in, had a great career as a result. You know, so I feel like these things are always popping up. You know, but I suppose when you're living and breeding it, I guess you're helping people go through the journey of it right now. So you, it's interesting you said about finance. And that sector is that mainly due to um, like interest rates, like the fact that they're making more money some banks at the moment, or how does that kind of work in context of like tech and other sectors? It's it's kind of unpredictable with banking. I, I think if you look at the history of how this plays out in banking, it's especially mm-hmm. within individual banks, 
it really doesn't change. You can try to attribute it to markets and you can try to attribute it to interest rates and technology and all that stuff. But really, it's like I said, it's part of the course. I, when I look over the two decades that I've been observing the financial sector, this happens either, either every year, or every other year. They're just the same exact amount of layoffs. Sometimes it's a little more, but it's pretty standard and it always happens year end, start of year. Yeah. So I, I don't think there's any cause for concern right now. What about uh, intakes? So analyst programs and stuff like that, will they start reducing those numbers, you think? Or what's your thoughts? I think those numbers have been reduced due to technology, not necessarily because of the markets. So for example, when I was working at Morgan Stanley, I think it was back in 2018, um, one of my managers made the observation that our division, just like five years earlier, had 20 summer analysts in the sales and trading division, and now it was down to like nine. And that reduction in number was just because of the technology that's replacing all the analyst associates. And it's not like you get a program and you replace an individual, but when so much is being automated, it just doesn't make sense to have so many people pushing buttons. That's mad. Would they not try to bring in more people with that money to make more money on, on the trading desk as a result? Like, well, how does that work, you know? So it it doesn't really work like that. I mean, it, it does depend on division and how it works. But typically, again, specifically, it depends on the division. But typically, the analysts and the much more junior analysts, sales, traders, they're given the grunt work. They're given a spreadsheet with 40,000 rows of trades from the day before. And they're told to sort it and organize it and create some sort of report so that we can only change the rates on clients where the daily number is over $10,000. For example, Mm -hmm. when I joined on the strat team, three months after joining, I produced a tool that did that for 40,000 rows in four seconds. There was probably, I I know there were people who had to do it and it took them weeks and weeks and weeks to do that. So what happens? Like, I'm trying to be a good person here. I'm doing my job. I'm making the bank a ton of money, but someone's going to get fired because of that. That (laughs) It's hard getting people fired. Maybe. I mean, but that's just the way it works. And hiring more people won't really help because the task is done. Now, if you're going to argue that they're hiring hiring more people to deal with more clients, okay, they need more clients for that. If you're going to argue hiring more people to handle more trades, well, you need more activity for that. So that's not a number you could just keep adding and making more money. In technology, yes. So in technology, Mm -hmm. you have this vision. um, Like, I don't know if you're aware, but right now I'm running a a technology startup. So with us, for every every person we, uh, you look surprised. (laughs) Is that part of Script Uni? Not at all. No. Oh, no, tell me more. I just recently added it to my LinkedIn profile. I'm sorry for segueing out so fast. But, <laughs> no, work um, away, man. So what's the what's the thesis if you can't go into in, in much detail as you can? What's your uh, idea? For the, for the technology startup? Yeah, yeah. What's the... What's, so what's I was with? working at Numerics. I left Morgan Stanley, not because I disliked it. I loved my role at Morgan Stanley. But I left it because for two reasons. Number one, I wanted to be able to put a lot of time and effort into social media and career guidance and they didn't love that kind of thing uh, they had someone you know some vp on their trading floor making a lot of noise online and no big company likes that because yeah. i could just get drunk one day and post something they don't like and mm-hmm. you know that's it uh so they weren't thrilled about it they didn't directly tell me not to do anything but i, I got the feeling that it would be better if i kind of went on, on my own at the same time i always wanted to try sales so i left and i went to numerics which is a fantastic company and i'm really close with a lot of the executives there 
So I joined that company, tried sales for about nine or 10 months. Wasn't exactly my thing. And my plan was to leave and just do coaching full-time and stuff like that. But then I had this opportunity. Someone reached out to me. He said, I have a lot of money. I'm interested in funding this idea I have. So we sat down and we talked. It was a pretty basic idea, but my brain was already turning. I love programming, by the way. Like I, I do want to focus on coaching and helping people with finance, but I absolutely love coding. And I heard so much potential in what he was saying. So I said, you give me budget to hire a good team and, and I'll do it. So we don't actually have a CEO yet. <laughs> I, I suspect at some point I'll, I'll be promoted to the position. Who knows? But right now I'm the COO and CTO. I have five developers reporting to me and we are building software that automates applications. And I actually mm -hmm. don't know any company that does this to the extent that we're doing it. So you think about applying for a home mortgage, for example. What happens is you get this broker who mm -hmm. you know says, interested in a mortgage, I can get you 4% or whatever, 5%. I'll need you to email me these documents. So you email these documents. Okay. Then he sends you back an email. All right, looks good. Now, can you send me your tax returns? This mm -hmm. usually takes a few weeks. Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Finally, all the documents in place and you start negotiations or this and that. The software we're building is absolutely wild. So that individual will put his email address and password into our software and just list out the required documents that he needs. And it will automatically read his email. And as applications come in, it'll open the emails. It'll determine whether it's an existing thread or a brand new email. If it's a new email, it'll take all the attachments, scan them, figure out what each attachment is. Oh, this is a bank statement. This is a tax return. This is an application for a loan. It figures them all out. Then using machine learning from all the previous stuff we have, it figures out if it's a good deal or not. Okay, this person oh my God. is trying to apply for a loan. It's been in business for five years and this and that. And it figures out all that stuff and says, okay, this person is definitely going to default on their loan. Not a good thing. And we can immediately decline it without the person even knowing. So they don't even have to touch their email, flag the emails, all these sorts of crazy stuff. So we have just like each developer is working on a different task over here. We actually have one industry we're starting with, uh, but then we plan on expanding into auto loans and mortgages and stuff like that. But it just makes everything completely hands off. Now, for, regu for regulatory purposes, there do have to be underwriters who decide what rates are and stuff like that. So instead of making decisions, mm -hmm. we're just going to put all the facts on the screen and say, look, someone applied. This is their credit score. This is how they've been performing in their other, you know, uh, whatever other deals or loans they're, they're involved in and all sorts of stuff. This is what they owe. This is what they own. This is what they're looking to do, how long their company's been in business, all the information we suggest offer them this at this rate, whatever. Um, and then they can make a really smart and informed decision. So it's just super cool stuff. But like, so now going back to what I mentioned before, <laughs> you can ask me any question, if I get one more person on my team, I can immediately say, okay, now what we always wanted to do was also have a dashboard where yeah. then the user can come in and do that. So it actually increases the productivity and what we're able to produce once we have one more hire in a mm -hmm. bank where you need more clients, you need more trades, like just hiring more people is a spend, it's an expense that might not be justified. That's just very different. It's a burden. It's a burden. Before we get closer down into more the the finance side of things, that's awesome on the on your startup. That's such a sick idea. Are you going to be selling into, let's say, bigger banks or 
let's say like you know insurance companies like is that the goal to hit them or is it on the individual that you want to have their details how does that work there's it's a lot to unpack and we're still kind of unwinding our plan we're going to start with individuals individual okay. brokers and i imagine as we start getting a lot of individual brokers on board because at first we're charging very little it's 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 not about money it's about just building users um so that's the plan. We're going to start pretty small. And I imagine as we get a lot of brokers at New York Life and other companies, it's going to start, word of it's going to start working its way up to senior management. And next thing you know, Mark Ross mm-hmm. doesn't need to charge his clients anything because the company sold for $15 billion. <laughs> that's the beauty of being on the technical side and the soft skill <laughs> side. Because like even for myself, like a software background working in a fintech, not an engineer, not a developer. So I need that CTO connection, kind of what you you are. But you're also able to sell. That's the beauty of combinate combining both your skills, you know. So you don't need to build out a sales team initially. You can be the sales I, team. I have to tell you, like my day, like people think the day in the life of somebody who works, I'm sure it's similar for most startup founders, but like mm-hmm. I'm on the phone with people who are testing our software every day. I'm helping our team design. I'm the head project manager. I review all the code. I'm doing every single different role that somebody should be doing in a company. And there are six people on the team. It's not like I have to, but just yeah. I have more experience than most people in every single one of these areas. So eventually I'd love to work. You know, so I'm training someone on the team now to be a project manager. And, okay. and yeah. he's working and he's developing his skills. And in, in right now we're using ClickUp. We moved off Jira onto ClickUp. And he's developing his skills and how to build cases and organize the sprints as they go. And hopefully he could take that off my plate at some point. That would make yeah, it easier it for me to do it. But like our logo, like I was the final say in it. And I picked the color scheme. Like it's crazy that I'm doing all this stuff. But it's, it's also fun. So like I think even for me, it's a bit kind of clearer at small times because let's say ClickUp and Jira comes very natural to someone who was a project manager and I was working in product and I was a product owner. But for you, like you have a wide base of skills and then you have a level of depth as well for each individual one, which is which is, which is wild. It's very unique. How would you say you've got that level of mastery? Like how does that happen? An insane amount of hours working in big corporations. So... For example, my most recent job at Morgan Stanley, I was a strat. And being a desk strat means you own a certain project. It's not really single deliverables. And when I when I describe different tiers in banking, I always tell people like the analysts analysts are judged by tasks. So an analyst mm-hmm. is told you need to go and accomplish this task. And the analyst finishes the task and then gets a pat on the back. An associate is responsible for a project. A project has a bunch of tasks within it, and the associate is assumed to be good enough at this to be able to do all the necessary tasks and then deliver the project. Then you get to the vice president level, and at the vice president level, you own an entire epic, I guess you can call it, which has projects in it, and you completely own an entire process. So on that team, I owned a few different processes, actually. Like one of them was the reporting that the desk did to our hedge fund clients. I owned the entire thing. So anything happened with reporting, whether the reporting broke, whether we needed a new report, whether the clients had questions about analytics, it all just came directly to me. And at the time, I had no one reporting to me. So I had to do project planning. I had to very clearly figure out, okay, I have all the stuff I need to deliver. 
this is the priority and then set it up myself and then go to the different heads of the desks and say, I can't deliver all this in a month, but this is what my plan is. I'll deliver this, 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 and then this project will be done in three months. And after I go through and get approval on all that, I have to enter all that into JIRA. So set up my project plan myself. Then I have to go and program it all myself. And then after the programming, I put it in Git and it goes through source code management. And meanwhile, I'm reviewing code for my teammates and they're reviewing my code. And then I have to do things that are usually done by IT, but because when you're a strat on the desk, you don't really have IT resources. So I'd have to set up what's called autosys jobs, which means Mm -hmm. it's these automatic jobs in the morning. It looks at the IT tables and it sees, okay, all the trades from the day before finally finished processing. Then my job will immediately kick off. My reports will start generating. In most companies, that's a task that's purely owned by IT. And I didn't even know how to do this stuff when I joined the desk. But I said, look, if I go to IT, I'll have to wait six months for this to happen. And I want to get these reports out. So I learned that skill myself. So now I'm doing just doing everything, building out the tables, designing the tools, setting up the autosys jobs that automatically kick it off, doing the project management, designing the front end, you know, the Excel graphs or the yeah. dashboards. So it's just the entire scope of deliverable and then actually talking to the clients. It was a really cool role because I, I got to do from A to Z myself. Obviously, I had individuals helping me along the way, but I owned the entire process. And it was it was amazing for, and it really prepared me for what I'm doing now. That's wild. How I describe that, and it's, it's actually a Revolut term, is being like CEO of the product or the project or whatever. You literally own everything end to end, which is goes to the technical side. And all the reporting side, the communication, the stakeholder management, which I don't think a lot of people get that exposure these days, especially younger people. Maybe as you go up to the VP level and you have that exposure now. But I think what you had shown as was that initiative isn't always there with younger people. Is that what you would you determine that as a differentiating factor? It it is yes, but it's it also it's not necessarily only the individual. It's also the business area you're in and and how it operates. So for example, somebody who goes into a trading role, the requirements for that are much, much different than what I had because my team was like the mission statement of my team was to make the desk smarter and more automated. That is a huge, huge responsibility and a massive scope. But something like trading, you have very, very explicit directions and what you have to do. It's very hard to own something that big. So like whether someone's an analyst, an associate, a vice president, or a director, what it comes down to is, were you good at, you know, managing the book, executing trades, talking to clients, but it's the same things. Now, of course, there's more responsibilities as you get more senior, but the scope of your ownership, I I mean, I guess the scope of your ownership does change, but not to this degree where you single-handedly own a massive product like this. Yeah, of course, of course. I suppose the nuances change, of course, deliberately depending on what area of the business that you're in. So let's go back. So as you're working with young career people who are trying to accelerate fast, what is the standout factors that you're looking for? I know you mentioned earlier as well, you mentioned that you need that standout factor. Is there something that you're putting more emphasis on with clients to uh, to accelerate your career quickly? So... <clears throat> Just just to make sure I understand the question, are you asking what helps young individuals um, differentiate themselves from everyone else to get roles? What helps them get promoted quickly? What exactly are you asking? I would say roles first. If you focus in on that, so like what areas are you focusing on for at the moment that you think that young professionals really need to be able to nail down on? 
Okay, so I guess we're talking specifically in finance, because mm-hmm, that is course. my expertise, despite the fact that I'm working in technology <laughs> yeah. now. So traditionally, it, it very much matters which area of finance you work. So for example, if you want to interested in uh, investment banking, PE, VC, or something like that, you have to have your accounting skills in, in perfect shape. You have to be able to write very well. You have to be on top of exactly how companies are performing and you have to be able to do your modeling, your DCFs, your LBO, all that stuff. And traditionally that has been enough. Not only has it been enough, but anything that wasn't that, that would show up on your resume was a distraction. And I know people in the past who had all these investment banking skills, but would also include reporting skills and operations skills and programming. And that would actually be bad for their resumes. Because some people would be so hyper-focused on investment banking. And these individuals were like jack-of-all-trades, but it made them seem not as stable, so it was bad. We're very slowly trending off of that. I happen to love that way of looking at things because it makes it much easier for me to help people write resumes. Usually mm-hmm. when people come to me, you know, I'm struggling, I'm not getting job offers, and I look at the resume and I say, okay, before you tell me what you're interested in doing, whether it's risk management or trading or investment banking, I'm reading your resume and I'm telling you that I have absolutely no idea what you want to do. And that's very bad. I think that still stands today. And it's a very big problem. People think I'm just going to put down everything I've done. I'm just going to put down all the skills I have. And that's my resume. It's a terrible way to look at it because somebody who applies for that role is going to make their resume look very perfect for that role. So it's going to be a perfect match. Whereas your resume doesn't match anything. It's all over the place. Mm -hmm. So that much, that hasn't changed. But I do think differentiating factors are starting to exist where, for example, maybe with the exception of those banking roles, like Python and SQL, those skills, no matter what you do in banking now, are a big plus. Like Mm -hmm. just going back to when I was in Morgan Stanley, my team developed a Python course for our entire division. And news of it started leaking out and the equity research team reached out to us and said, hey, we're interested in trying out your Python course. And I was thinking, that's crazy. Equity research interested in Python? In 2014, I applied for an equity research role at Morgan Stanley. And I remember the VP who was in charge of all the analysts, she said, what differentiates you from all the other applicants? I said, well, I'm a VBA wizard. So you do all your modeling in Excel. I can automate all that. So instead of having all these calculations going on the sheet, you push a button and you get your price. And her response was, what's VBA? <laughs> in 2014? 2014. I was like, oh my oh god, I'm in the wrong place. And then you fast forward five years later and they're reaching out to my team and saying, hey, can we take your Python course? Like, oh wow, my god. things have changed a lot in just five years. It's crazy. But that's just starting to make people stand out. That's mad. So you're focused mainly on the technical side and making sure that you're getting those technical areas out and and right and seen to the right person, not on the soft skills side. It's it's tech. So from a resume perspective, I think soft skills are generally impossible to highlight. I, I yeah. am very against summary sections unless you need one. An example of needing a summary section is you worked for five years in trading and you want to move into risk management. If you just show your resume to a risk management team, they're going to look at it and say, I guess this person couldn't find the role they were looking for, and they're trying to fall back on us. That's not good. Mm -hmm. So there, you can write a summary section, and the very first thing in your resume should say, 
trader for five years looking to expand into areas of risk, man, like you can justify your move. And I've done that and it works very well. But generally, I think summary sections are terrible. People write, I'm a people person. I work great with teams. I'm a, you know, fun, exciting personality. Like, you're making up a whole bunch of nonsense about yourself. How is the team supposed to believe? Subjective. Of course. Hmm. So there are, I, I think there's just one good soft skill that you can actually write in your resume without writing it. And that is if you've worked on projects where there's a team involved, you can word that very well, like mm -hmm. <clears throat> that you are a project manager or in school, there were 10 people on the team and you came in first place and you managed the team. You can write that in a not egotistical way. And mm -hmm. it's obvious that you had to deal with a lot of people that that works. But just writing about your you. skills, you can't do that in a resume. So That's yeah, technical skills and where you put them in your like resume design is so important for job applications. Just mm -hmm. the way out how, how do you think about LinkedIn in the context of job applications? Like, do you push your clients to build it out and also to reach out on LinkedIn? Yeah. So LinkedIn's created something very interesting because. Even now, the LinkedIn profile is very rarely looked at until the resume is approved. And what that means is in an investment bank, for example, like on our desk, we would get thousands of resumes for like those summer positions, which is a crazy number. And we'd have to get a whole bunch of people in a room around the table and everybody gets a stack of 200, 300 resumes and nobody leaves the room until they finish their stack. Is it not automated? No. What? Would they not just, would they, is it not automated oh, whereby no, 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 like... No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Whereby they just get rid of the myth. fluff. Some stuff gets eliminated through automation. There, there, yeah. there is this, you know, resume reading software, and it catches certain things that are flags and eliminates them. But a majority of the resumes do get through. Prison um, record. It's crazy, <laughs> and so you're flipping through hundreds of pages really quickly, looking for keywords, looking for things that look bad or really good, and just separating these piles. With the stack of good ones, then they get divvied out further to people who then do a little more research. So either it's reading it okay. slower or looking at the LinkedIn profile, which is why like with my clients, we first focus on the resume and build a really nice resume. But then afterwards, we go back to LinkedIn and make sure LinkedIn matches the resume perfectly. Because too often people make a LinkedIn profile, forget about it, uh, go to the resume, do 15 different revisions. Finally, okay. And they forget that they took out two internships from their resume because it was starting to look really crowded, but it's still in their LinkedIn profile. And now there's this mismatch, which to you might seem like, okay, it's harmless. It's a mismatch. And to somebody who's receiving it might think, okay, this person's lying. Mm. So they should match. That's for sure. That's, that's interesting. So you think that even a LinkedIn profile may not even help your case to a certain degree, it could even just, just work detrimental sometimes. LinkedIn profiles are very helpful for entrepreneurs. They're very helpful for marketing teams. They're very helpful for sales, all that stuff where they're seeing how you present yourself online. But for most mm -hmm. finance roles, most senior management don't even have LinkedIn profiles. And if they do, it's because their team put it up for them. They mm -hmm. don't care. I remember I was at a, an event where the chief risk officer of, of Morgan Stanley was talking to hundreds of people and he looked around the crowd and he laughed and he said, you know what? I have more people standing in front of me today than I have connections on LinkedIn. Why aren't you guys friending me? <laughs> it was hilarious. That's, and it was about it though. 
It yeah, yeah, true. exactly, exactly. What What about slightly senior roles? So, of course, like the intakes um, would have like you know the thousands and thousands of roles, but like yourself, who who moved around a bank, is that possible to do through LinkedIn? So you reach out to hiring manager, you build a good relationship, you get an interview through that process. Okay, so what I was talking about so far it was all about profile and profile of design. Yeah. Really, for finance roles, keep it boring. Keep it sweet. It should match the resume. That simple. Mm -hmm. But as far as using LinkedIn as a tool to get a job, I think that's very underrated in finance. Very underrated. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that I say every time in front of a camera, and I hope it just seeps into people, is I've been hired by Morgan Stanley twice. I've been hired by State Street. I've been hired by Numerics twice. I got this COO role, and I never once applied for a job online. That's the Words. power of networking. It all came through personal connections. And the, my favorite thing to say when I'm, you know, I'm at, I used to do events in, in New York every three months, I would do these LinkedIn finance events. And one thing I would always tell people is my entire network of, of tens of thousands of people started with one, my dad, who wasn't even working in finance because he knew somebody in the 80s who was working in finance and they kept in touch and he put me in touch with that person. Who then put me in touch with someone else who put me in touch. And that just expanded into a whole universe of people. So, mm -hmm. and I always hear this from people complaining. Oh, what do you mean? I, I just got here from China. I don't know anybody. My dad, one person, and my entire career was built off that. And he mm -hmm. doesn't even work in finance and never has. So, yeah, but LinkedIn, definitely, if you get good at writing, you have to be smart about it. Too often I see people just have this generic message and they... I can't tell you how many messages I have in my inbox that say, hi, Matt. But it's funny though, like as in like the LinkedIn thing is like, to, to your point about the Chinese student, you know, it's there, it's untouched, it's untapped and people can use it. Like the fact that only 1% of the platform really, of users really use the platform is just wild. You know, you can just send a message and I generally use that your sales technique uh, which is like the three why theory. So it's why you, why me, and why now? And I got this from a sales book. Someone explained it to me. And it's really good because it says like, why do I actually genuinely like what you're doing? It's thoughtful. Like I like what you, I like your career at least. I like what you've done. Why me is, you know, I'm in finance. I'm trying to go really far in my career. I'd love to get, um, I'd love to get a conversation. In. And why now is, or oh, there's an upcoming, you know, uh, intake of grads or whatever. And generally it kind of shows someone who is ambitious. And people kind of take them in under the wing. So I think people talk down on themselves of what they can achieve and what they can connect with. Because I think they look at someone like yourself and, you know, at 21, 22, think it's not possible. Yeah, uh, and that's 100% that's true. And an another thing I would say is way too many people think networking is trying to get a job. And that's not at all what it is. <laughs> yeah. And even though it might feel like I need a job right now, that's not how you network. You don't, would yeah. you walk, essentially, if you ask someone for a job, you are no different than someone on the street panhandling. Like you're saying, can I have a dollar? These yeah. people don't know you. Why would you just ask for something outright? So the way you have to do it is you have to ask them for a conversation or advice. Do not attach your resume, but do it in a flattering way. And, and I, I tell people, okay, you have no relatives, no problem. You go to university in the U.S., right? Okay, so right now you've just opened up your network to 150,000 alumni. Like you open the message to some director working at Goldman Sachs and you simply say, 
as um, you know, as an alumni of wherever, I'm going through exactly what you went through. I looked over your profile and I'm really impressed with what you've accomplished in your life. Would you be able to give me 15 minutes on Zoom? I'd love to hear how you planned your career and hopefully I can do something similar. You're not mm-hmm. asking for anything. You're just asking for a little time because you're so impressed with what they've done and they you're in a similar boat. Something like that, obviously it depends on how you word it, but those get way more success than attached to my resume. I saw a job posting from your company. I, I, I hate when people do that. You're, you're mentioning a job posting in a company 99.99999% of vice presidents and directors and banks have no idea what job posting you're talking about because that's not their <laughs> job or responsibility. It's they're something. not working in recruitment. <laughs> they're not working in recruitment, you know? That's right. That's wild. It, it's, again, it's it's being social on social media, isn't it? Just trying to connect with people in the right way and then trying to tie in a message to make sure it's, I don't know, it's somewhat thoughtful and somewhat relatable. And you know what? Most people could be too busy. Most MDs are running around, you know, wild, but they may see it and they may want to interact. And that you only need one person in the day to at least put you in the right direction. And you might even learn you don't even want to roll a Morgan Stanley afterwards. You could speak to him and he could say, yeah. you're doing this. And you say, oh, okay, maybe I want to go somewhere else. Maybe I want to move into tech. But you need to broaden your horizons though for it. And I feel like people especially in finance, don't want to do that. Maybe it's because they might think that that person will think ill of them and it'll work against against them in the long run. Yeah. Uh, I, people are just scared of everything. Scared of public speaking, scared of reaching out. Yeah. I, I don't get it because I love this kind of stuff. Like, yeah. there's this famous saying, Same, people like more people are scared of public speaking than of death. I yeah. love public speaking. It's my favorite thing after chocolate ice cream. So <laughs> you're speaking for the wrong person. Um, no, no, you, you're dead right. And even just like the fact that, um, you know, Justin Welsh, you may see him on, on, on LinkedIn from time to time. His whole thing is that there's generally no drawbacks to this. Of course, you mentioned the Morgan Stanley thing where they are not keen on you writing online. But generally, the upside is, the upside is always better than the downside. But generally, there's very little downsides. So I think, even for next year, you can go harder on trying to build that online presence so that these things become a little bit, even one inch a bit easier to your life. Yeah. And, and there's one thing, it's funny because I've been doing this for this, by this, I mean like networking. Like Everything I do is about networking. I've probably been networking for over a decade now. And just recently, I discovered something really interesting, which is that first connection and even that first Zoom call you have with someone, which used to be a coffee or a phone call, but now it's Zoom. I used to think that was the most important thing. And now, having been in sales, it's really opened my eyes. That is not the most important. The most important is the second time you meet with someone. So, for example, if you reach out with someone, you know, I see we graduated same school. I'd love to learn about your career. So you have a conversation, 15, 20-minute conversation. That person tells you all about how they got their internship and then their other internship and connected with someone. You ask a lot of questions. You hang up the phone. You ask nothing. And you have this Excel spreadsheet or Google sheet, whatever, where you keep track of all these people you reach out to and you set timers, three month timers to alert you or to turn red when three months has expired from the call. And then you send a message three months later and say, hey, Jake, uh, I just want to thank you so much for that conversation we had three months ago. I started implementing a lot of what we talked about and it's completely changed the way I'm looking at the job search. Um, I have some updates would love to chat with you if you have some time. And now what's happened is you've gone from somebody who's a cold outreach, who they don't know and they're doing a favor to, to a friend or a mentee. And just the whole conversation is totally different. 
It's, hey, yeah, it's been three months. How's it been going? Tell me about your updates. And now it's suddenly mm. like this father-son relationship. It's totally different. And you can directly ask for things. So, <clears throat> yeah, we were talking about this. And I was doing what you said, but now I'm in this situation where I know I'll only have this amount of time to find a job or I'm going to be sent back to my home country. And I've been reaching out to these people and they haven't been so responsive. So, for example, at your company, you're working at Goldman Sachs. Do you know somebody who would maybe be more responsive to me? Like now you could just directly ask for things because they're, they've taken you under their wing. That second call is just so much more powerful. That is awesome. Like I, I, I see that in my own examples without knowing this, just that the second you meet someone on a reoccurring basis, it's like goes from formal to informal and then slightly know each other more and more. And it worked both ways as well. You never, you never know, you know, that person who's 40, has 20 years experience might come to you at some stage for some sort of help. So it's not like it's just one way, this entire relationship. It's true. It's awesome. You've really mastered this skill, man. And this is one thing that why I've had a podcast, you know, two years or whatever on this ship so far. It's been around that area of networking and meeting people, not to get stuff out of people, but just because I can learn and build relationships and you never know where it can end up, you know? It's awesome. So I want to get into your book. So your sales and trading book, all around jargon for sales and trading. What is the message you want to convey to young professionals, especially in finance? Yeah, I, I don't think the, the book is about <laughs> conveying a message uh, necessarily. It's, and I have this opening to the book where I'm very clear about it. And I, and I, I start off the book writing that after reading this book, you will be able to walk up to the most seasoned trading trader on Wall Street and have a perfectly long you know, conversation, coffee chat, and you'll understand everything that comes out of her mouth. And she'll understand everything that you're saying. Like just right now, if a trader is talking to a student, they have to kind of dumb down their entire conversation. They can't mention mm -hmm. things like yield curves or option trading or strategies or all bootstrapping. Like all this is, is such odd jargon. So they just really have to dumb down. Oh, we talk to clients and we even the word trades, they have to explain what they're talking about. So the idea of this book, and it's a pretty small book, is that after reading it, you learn over 200. Well, there are 200 official definitions in the book. But each one has another two or three baked into it. So you walk away with probably close to a thousand new definitions in the book. And it just opens your eyes to just everything that goes on. And, and aside from just the actual trading activity, the book also goes into different roles within finance, how the structure of investment banks, what different divisions are in banks and how they produce money for the banks within those structures, what the levels of seniority are what the roles are, and then at the very end of the book, even how to get roles from a career perspective. So it's just kind of this holistic view into the world of finance from a banking perspective. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the, the terminology aspect though is huge because even myself, like I started trading options about six months ago. And even like now, I would try to put 30 minutes in every single day, no matter what, always put 30 minutes in. But I would look at things like it could be the Greeks, it could be VIX, it could be anything. And I would still like lose that definition in my head because it would have been explained to me by Simon Ree six months ago. And then I'm trying to recall it. So I think there's so much terms in the whole world of finance. And I'm only looking at one specific area of options that it's like, you kind of do need this uh, glossary on an ongoing basis. And to be honest, like, I don't know what you get thought that in finance, but you don't, 
get it taught in the context of your everyday job. That's the biggest thing I kind of find. Yeah, exactly. So like I, I when I think when I think about the book, like 50% of the book I would say reminds me of John Hall's book. So John Hall is a book on options, uh, futures, and other derivatives. And it's a great book, but it's like 800 pages long. And each page <laughs> is like 50,000 words. And he goes very into detail. So as you mentioned, like if you wanted to recall something, you'd have to go and read a chapter for seven hours. In that time, you could have read my book twice. And with every definition, not with every definition, but a lot of them have examples, very simplistic examples of how these items trade or what the underpinnings are for them. So it, it, it's very clear and a very easy way to recall it. One of the most interesting things is there is no actual glossary because the entire book is a glossary, but the exactly. table of contents is so interesting. And just how clear it is, it just breaks down like assets. And then this asset, this asset, this asset, this asset, and the page numbers. And then, you know, company IPOs. Then it breaks down the different steps of the IPO trades. There's the orders, there's the executions, and everything's a different page number. And for anything to recall it, you just flip to that page. It's one or two pages long and you're done. How do you think that helps in the context of interviews? I guess the best example is, is me. In 2013, I went for an interview with Morgan Stanley. This is when I got my first role there for risk management. And the first managing director I went in to speak with, I was so prepared because I found someone in my network who worked in Morgan Stanley Risk, in market risk in particular, which is where I was interviewing. And I sat down with this guy trying to remember his name. All right. I see his face, but I can't remember his name. Um, so I sat down with him and I said, tell me every word that you say on a recurring basis. Like what are the important keywords? And he started walking <laughs> me through everything, VAR, stress testing, this, that. And I wrote it all down and I did a lot of research. I was on Google reading every article I could, just becoming so familiar with the jargon. So then I walked into this woman, uh, to Judy's office. So I'm in her office. She started talking and I didn't want her to get to my resume. That was my goal because I wasn't the smartest in my cohort. And I knew if she'd start challenging me on like the Greeks and stuff like this and Black Shoals, she'd probably trip me up and it sounds stupid at some point. So my, point, my, my goal was to just avoid all technical conversations. So she started talking and I said, I've been doing a lot of research into risk because I find this fascinating. So I know that value at risk plays a really important role in banking. She said, oh, Absolutely. I said, so what's your preferred method here at Morgan Stanley? So she, so she said, oh, it's an interesting question. Nobody asked that. We use historical of our. I said, and, and what's your look back horizon? She got taken back a minute. She's like, oh, okay, we use four years. I said, that's really interesting because I know Bank of America uses one year because they're concerned that you're putting too much weight on history. And we got in this whole conversation about exponential weighted moving averages and how a crisis could possibly dis disappear over a period of before you knew it, our time was up. She's like, oh my goodness, you have to go speak to Mickey now. It's been really nice meeting you. And I got an offer a day later. It's just so cool. Like I made through the entire interview without actually touching on anything that was on my resume or any technical questions, just because I understood the language so well. And you understand what actually happens inside the business. I think that's the other part of your book as well, because I don't know about finance, but I know different degrees don't exactly teach you what's happening inside there. Like I know a finance degree that doesn't teach you like anything about trading, like anything, nothing. I don't know, should it? But I know that there should be some sort of correlation for people going to interviews afterwards. And they'll come out and have zero, zero experience. Not experience of trading, but zero knowledge of how to trade. Surely that has to work against you though. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so 
I, I told you about the first tar- part of the paragraph in the book, but the second part yeah. says, after reading this book, you will not get an A in any finance classes in college, nor will I tr- teach you any trading strategies and you won't start winning on the stock market. That's not the point. It's all yeah. about conversations and just having a high level understanding of everything that goes on in the world of finance. Um, in general, I think college, not just finance, I think it needs a bit of a rework. <laughs> it's The goal sure. of college should be help someone not only get into a job, but also perform well in the job. That's not at all the way they look at it. Unfortunately, most universities, their goal is just to make as much money as possible from the students, however they can do it. That's their primary goal, which I guess as a business is okay. But the mm-hmm. secondary goal is just get people like whatever roles they can get at the best salary possible. They never once think we want our students to succeed, which is crazy because that's what the students want. Shouldn't your goals be aligned? It's 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 a really big problem. I, I made a post about this a month or so ago because I have an idea of how I can start making a difference. It's Once the book's out, I'm going to start working on it. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm not, not a big fan with the direction universities are going. There's there's so many different angles you can go down that that approach, but even like my degree, like which I would say is a really good degree, it's half between um, engineering and half between business. That's kind of the idea behind it. They do have a high success rate of getting people into top companies and whatnot, but there's a clear disconnect about what you've learned and what you're going to do. There's just a light and day, and I think even when I went to State Street, uh, which was 2018, I had no idea what they did. <laughs> You know, I had no idea. You had to just put this together over time and just speak to people on the interview to learn it, which is the biggest challenge. So you're you're, you're retrospectively learning when you should be going into an interview readily prepared from your university. Yeah. And so to this point, and actually answers one of the questions you, you asked way back in the beginning, uh, I believe it was about 2018 or 2019 when we brought in the summer analysts. At that point, Morgan Stanley was making a push to hire to bring in students that weren't necessarily from Ivy League or from finance degrees specifically. So we had a lot of people coming in from not Ivy League universities and from like these very, very unusual like architects or, or um, uh, what, were the, what were the weird ones like um, psychology and not necessarily weird, but they just had nothing to do with finance. And it got me thinking because some of them performed very well over the summer. So I was thinking, okay, so we know the finance degrees really don't teach so many useful skills for doing the job well, and somebody who has a completely irrelevant degree can perform well. So my idea of what the perfect degree for someone in finance should be has completely shifted since then. And now I think it's math and programming. And the reason is because with math and programming or statistics or or even economics, with those degrees, you learn these very strong technical foundations that when you get good at finance and you come to finance, let's assume you have no knowledge whatsoever and you learn how to execute trades and you learn how to look at reports, then you can say, okay, wait, a minute, I can automate this because I know Python or I'm looking at all these numbers. I know statistics. I can start looking at all these from a different way and start calculating metrics that can really impact my trade decisions. So you actually have something in your back pocket that's extremely valuable where if you go to a finance degree, you don't really learn very many useful things. And if you get a completely unrelated degree, it's just not going to help you at all. Yeah. I noticed that big as well in the consulting world. You had people doing biomedical science who were doctors and dentists that left to become consultants, like not doctor consultants, but just business consultants. But it's kind of like, 
you can apply like data analytics is a great point. If you can build dashboards in a biomedical sense, you can walk over to finance and build the best metrics you need and build it out for, for an entire department. So I suppose they're using those transferable skills. Yep. And getting that level. One another area I want to touch on as well, which we didn't talk on our last podcast, was around your side hustle, Script Uni. So you've been building that for like seven years, roughly in total. And when you started that, did you ever have ambition that you wanted to grow to where it is today? So it's pretty funny because I think every other business online, certainly all the ones that are as successful as ScriptUni, have all evolved. They've added many more courses. They've made their websites much flashier. Their marketing has been crazy. Uh, I haven't paid a cent in marketing, have never changed the website, didn't change our pricing. Actually, there's one course that we changed the pricing, but that's because we added some chapters to it. But for all the other courses also, they've just not changed at all. And you might argue, wait a minute, in seven years, nothing's changed? And the answer is no. Like the Python in our course, we changed it from Python 2 to Python 3, which are like literally a few words in some homework assignments. And that's it. And the reason is because when I designed CryptUni in those courses, my mentality was, okay, I've been at Morgan Stanley, I've been at State Street. I see what analysts and associates are trying to do and where their limitations are because they don't know programming. Let's take these financial concepts, implement them from a programming perspective. That will be the case study of the course. And now let's teach programming from an entry-level perspective, from a base, no-knowledge perspective. So for example, the Python course. Um, I actually didn't write it. Avi Paley did. He he worked at Bank of America um, as an e-trader for about seven or eight years. Now, I believe he went to a crypto firm. So... um, but he's, he's an incredible programmer and really good at main <clears throat> concepts. So he assumes no Python knowledge. But by the end of the course, your final assignment is to build an asset-backed security pricer, which is very complex. And you're building this asset class, and you're building this loan class, and then you have to kind of merge them together, implement them, do all sorts of object-oriented programming within Python. And there's multi-threading and all these great stuff, Monte Carlo simulations. It all sounds really cool. It sounds amazing on a resume. And then you just write like one or two lines in your resume. It will certainly be brought up in the interview, and you'll sound like an absolute wizard as somebody who single-handedly built a pricer that takes teams of people to do in banking. And that's not changed at all. It's still a really useful skill. One of my clients just recently got a job working in that exact area in pricing asset-backed securities for an incredible salary, and the team is looking to grow. So it's still extremely relevant, and the mission statement of ScriptUni has never changed, which is teach people basic-level programming with very strong financial applications so that, A, they can hit the job, you know, hit the ground running and build useful mm-hmm. things, and B, they'll just sound amazing on their resumes. Mm-hmm. That's wild. That's wild. In terms of the business side, then, how have you seen it grow? Like, did you want to get like like a lot of users on board? Like, what was your goal from it? Because seven years, seven years, a lot of people would have dropped off in that journey. A lot from from a creator and business owner perspective, um, I have really not grown ScriptUni. It's grown and kind of taken a life of its own. But for me personally, it's been okay. I have this day job where I'm paying my bills, and then I have for some reason, my social media and coaching is just growing and growing and growing. And Script Uni has been like my little golden goose that's just sitting there laying eggs. But I haven't had to do much work. I am actually a TA for a couple of the courses there. So I do work as in grading homeworks. And, but 
developing the program further, I have not done. Now, what's going to happen very soon, this is the first big change Scriptine is happening. It's actually happening in a, a little over a week. So you caught me at a good time. Seven <laughs> years, no changes, and it's about to go through a transformation. And that is uh, my website, markross.com, which right now just says sign up for consultation, consultation for coaching. That's all it is. It's completely evolving. As this book comes out, I'm going to ship with the website a free cover letter course specifically for finance or technology. And then I'm building a resume course. And then Scriptini is going to be consumed within markross.com. So you come to this website and you're like, okay, I want a career in finance. You can buy the sales and trading book. You can buy a resume book. You can take this cover letter course and all this stuff. It's basically a one-stop shop where after it, you have all the technical skills, you know, you have an amazing resume, you know, to present yourself well, and you can just get a job in finance. That's wild. I think the the online course model like the, of your coaching books and the courses all coming together creates a whole suite for people to have. Yeah. Like it's awesome that you're very like deep in that area as well. What else is on your roadmap for courses? Are you going to go down more on script uni or are you going to just add the resume stuff going forward? All right. So I'm letting you in a secret that I haven't told anyone else yet. <laughs> you have to have your new roadmap built. Everyone has their 2023 roadmap. The one thing I've been very disappointed in myself about is that like my time's obviously crazy valuable. So I charge a lot for coaching and I'm aware of that. And it's unfortunate that I'm pricing out 99% of the world. So that, that makes me unhappy. So I'm trying to take most of this knowledge that I have and consolidate and put into courses. And it's starting with this cover letter course, which I'm charging nothing for. Then, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned, uh, before I wrote the sales and trading book, I actually had a resume book. And that's going to come out in about five or six months. And along with that, I'm shipping out a resume course, which is going to be a multi-hour course on how to write just the most competitive resumes for finance that will get you roles. So it's going to be like, you take the resume course, you can buy the resume, I'm sorry, you take the cover letter course, you can buy the resume book, which costs like not a lot of money at all. If you want to upgrade that into the resume course, you could do that as well. And then I'm actually already starting to draft the blueprints for a networking book and a networking course and an interview book and an interview course. So that's where I'm going. I'm headed towards the career coaching for finance courses and material where you can kind of get all of that content for less than an hour with me on the phone. That's I love that. I'm I'm so interested in that whole sphere. Like, I, like I, I love that whole area. How would you compare that to, let's say, the days of Morgan Stanley, looking back at it now? Like the, what, in terms of enjoyment, passion, fulfillment, like... <clears throat> What does it do for you versus what you were doing before? It's really hard to answer because I, I've said this a million times and I'll say it a million times over. My most recent role at Morgan Stanley, I loved. I absolutely loved it. If I could change anything, it would be I hate COVID and I hate the fact that I wasn't spending time with my team in person. Like I just loved my team. We were like family. Um, and I didn't love that I was sitting at my desk at 6.30 in the morning. That I do like getting up early, but it was a little bit crazy that I had to leave my house at 5 a.m. every day. So that like just changing those hours a little bit, it would have been the absolute perfect career. Um, I'm incredibly thankful that I had that opportunity and had this not all worked out for me, I would have kept doing that my entire career if possible. So I can't say anything bad about that. Um, but this is fulfilling under such a different level. Uh, one example is I used to do these LinkedIn finance events every three months in Manhattan. And I would do meetups and somewhere between 50 and 100 people would come from LinkedIn. And I would just you know, give resume tips one day or one day talk about networking. And there was once when I did the same content back to back. So three months, uh, actually, I believe it was six months later, I, I, I 
went through this whole networking thing and then some resume tips. And then six months later, I did an event again. And I posted that it was going to be the same exact content. And it was a whole new crowd of people. And then there were two guys sitting up front who I recognized being at the previous event. So I said nothing. We went through the whole event. And then at the end, I went over to them. I said, guys, you knew this was the exact same content. Why did you come again? And they both had the same story, which was wild. They were both um, in college. They were undergrad students. And they had no idea what they wanted to do. They were pretty sure they wanted to work in finance, but they really didn't know which area of finance or how to get into it. They came to my two-hour event in the city. And they both tell me it completely changed their mind. They left both having different ideas on what they wanted to do. One decided he wanted to be a trader for a hedge fund, and one decided he wanted to work in equity research at a big investment bank. Six months later, they both had those jobs. Trader at a hedge fund, equity research at Credit Suisse both getting paid more money than they ever thought they would make. And they both said, we could not have done it without you. We wouldn't have known what to do. You helped us with our resumes somehow in in those two hours. And we came and sat through this event just so we could say thank you in person. The feeling you get from hearing that, like you don't get that feeling when you produce a nice report and your manager pats you on the head and says, good job. If you even get the pot on your head, you know, if you even get that pot on your head. So I think, yeah, it's 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 wild what you can help with people online when you, to your point, you have that mission statement that you speak to every day and you genuinely work towards that. Like what you can do for other people, other people's careers and lives is dramatic. Like these two dudes on the equity research desk and traders are earning crazy money because of you. And they're helping their families, helping their older families, whatever, whatever the context of their life is. So when you put it down to it, maybe they were smart students, but they got to push from like an like an inspir- like inspiration influencer, whoever it is that gives them that kick, which is all which is what we need. You know, we need more people that do this stuff online. That's why I asked you is because I think it's an important space for people to be in, the right people. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mark, where can people find your your book, your LinkedIn when it comes out next week on the fifteenth? So it's a tricky question. Because as we're recording this, my website is not updated, but somewhere around December 15th through December 20th, my website's going to get a complete overhaul and it will have all the information. It will be able to link you to all my social media pages, as well as it will link you to the Amazon page. We're going to have, if you go through my website, you'll get at least 20, 25% off right away. I'm not, not looking to monetize this book all too much. That's not my goal. Um, and everything, LinkedIn, all the platforms. You just go to markross.com. It'll, it'll point you in all the right directions. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate it.